This is Circulating Ideas. I'm Steve Thomas. My guest today is David Jarmel. He's the author of Not Exactly Retired, A Life-Changing Journey on the Road and in the Peace Corps, where he worked in Moldova in a library. Circulating Ideas is brought to you with support from listeners just like you. Find out how you can help support the show by going to circulatingideas.com slash support. David Jarmel, welcome to Circulating Ideas. Thank you for coming on the show today. Steve, thanks so much for having me, and hi to all of your listeners. I, I like every once in a while to have a different kind of guest, which you are, but you you do have a library connection, so if we don't get to that for a little bit, stay tuned, listeners, I promise. <laughs> There's library content coming. Um, so before we get to your current work, um, I want to talk a little bit about, about your life before retirement. You would join the Peace Corps in your 20s. Um, what was going on in your life at the time, and what was appealing to you about the Peace Corps? What What kind of led you to that? You're right, Steve. I joined the Peace Corps for the first time uh, shortly after I graduated from college, uh, and I served in Nepal in the Himalaya Mountains for two years. Um, Almost all of my roommates and friends at college went on to graduate school, to law school, or whatever, and that just wasn't for me. I had this sense of adventure and wanderlust, and I'd always been interested in the Peace Corps. I organized a Peace Corps fundraiser when I was in high school um, and then did some traveling and, and traveled to Nepal, among other places, and fell in love with it. So when the opportunity came to serve in the Peace Corps there, I jumped at it, and so that's where I spent the first two years. And then... Um... After the Peace Corps, well, I guess some important things happened while you were on your Peace Corps duty. <laughs> um, you met someone very special. I did. I was a teacher in a small school in the Himalayas, uh, and I taught English and had a really good experience. But what you're referring to is there was another teacher at the school, and we fell in love. That's now my wife, Champa. We've been married for more than 40 years. And what's interesting is that Champa herself was taught by Peace Corps volunteers when she was a girl growing up in this little town in the Himalayas, uh, and they changed her life. So I had a soft spot in my heart for the Peace Corps, but so did she. And then uh, over the decades that followed, as we moved back to America and we raised a family and pursued respectable, conventional American lives, we can talk about that. But um, we always had this idea that later in life, if the stars aligned, we would like to serve in the Peace Corps together as a couple. Uh, and that's what we did. And we ended up going to serve in Moldova in Eastern Europe. And that's, I think, what we're going to talk about, the work I did at the library there. But the Peace Corps was something in our hearts for a very long time. Yeah. And uh, so just just briefly, since we want to be we're thinking more about the post-retirement part of your life, um, but w- can, kind of lead the uh, listeners to uh, what what you did in your quote-unquote normal American life. Yeah, my normal life. So I was a journalist and a communications person, and I spent uh, the last 14 years of my American working life as the head of news and communications at Duke University in uh, Durham, North Carolina, which is where I'm speaking to you from right now. Uh, And so during my time at Duke, I dealt with the famous Duke lacrosse incident and winning Nobel Prize and basketball championships and you, you name it. And it was mine. It was a really exciting job. And I actually loved it. Some people, you know, quit their jobs, you know, take this job and shove. And that wasn't the case for me at all. I actually really liked my job and I liked my friends there. But I had this voice in the back of my head saying that 
there was more to my life than that. And I wanted to do some other things. And there was this whole Peace Corps thing that Trump and I wanted to do. So as we approached our 60th birthdays, we got serious about paying off our mortgage and starting to declutter our house and kind of getting things ready. So when we were 62, we walked away. And a year later, we were serving in the Peace Corps. And what kind of reaction did um, your friends and family have to that? Quite a few people were shocked. Uh, I'm sure some people thought I was nuts. Um, Those who knew me best, including our our two sons and their families, they knew what was in our hearts and they were cheering us on. Um, And as time went by, I think we won over some of the skeptics. You know, one thing that I've heard a lot um, throughout this whole process is, oh, the Peace Corps, you know, I could never do that. Well, that's kind of a crazy idea. And it's not. Um, Since President Kennedy started the Peace Corps in 1961, a quarter of a million Americans have served, and that includes thousands of older Americans like my wife and myself. Every year, there's hundreds of older Americans who sign up to serve in the 61 countries around the world where Peace Corps volunteers are now stationed. Um, As you and I are talking, Steve, and as many of your listeners will know, the Peace Corps recently had to evacuate all of its volunteers worldwide because of the coronavirus outbreak. Um, So it's it's a tough time for those volunteers and for the Peace Corps generally, but we're all hoping that uh, better days will come and that uh, the Peace Corps will be back working, uh, doing its important work around the world before too long. Um, so you made this jump into this new life. Uh, where did you? Uh, where were you off to first? Uh, so before we were in the Peace Corps, Trump and I took a driving trip around the United States, thirty-one states, eleven thousand miles over two months, going all these places we'd always wanted to go but never had time to. While we were both holding down our jobs, um, came back, caught our breath did some laundry. Then we went off to Nepal for almost as long uh, to spend time with her family, but also to go out to some places that Americans rarely get to go to. Uh, and at the end of that trip, quite a few members of our American family came over. So we had a big a big gathering of, of her family and my family. Uh, and that was really terrific. Both of those trips, the US trip and the Nepal trip, were also a way to emotionally test drive the idea of leaving home and um, pursuing our dream which can sound good as a fantasy but when you you know when you're actually out there and living in a suitcase how does it really feel um and by the time we were through the second one we knew that we wanted to go ahead and and pursue the peace corps idea uh it it took several months to get through the the uh sorting out through the medical clearance and all the other stuff you have to do uh, but by the middle of 2016, off we went to Moldova, which is where we served for two years. So you, you mentioned, and you chronicle all of this in your new book, um, Not Exactly Retired, A Life-Changing Journey on the Road and in the Peace Corps. Um, and you mentioned in the book that you were a little worried at first because you weren't sure the Peace Corps would take you back <laughs> as um, a person in their 60s. Um, did that end up being any kind of issue? Uh, the medical review process for Peace Corps is pretty rigorous. Trump and I are both basically in good health. We had to fill out more than 40 forms, see a slew of doctors, um, and that took several months. And all of that was in addition to the they, – they do a, a legal review and make sure you haven't done have a criminal record and being fingerprinted and all that. I mean, it's all predictable and pretty straightforward 
things that you would expect. It takes some time. They'll probably look more closely at older volunteers, as they should, because they pay for all of your medical expenses and are responsible for you while you're serving. Um, but again, thousands of older Americans have done this, and people do it every year and we got through the process and um on the other end i'll tell you you know having served in my 20s which is how probably many of your listeners still think of peace corps volunteers as right. you know recent college graduates and and that is true a majority of volunteers are in their 20s um I found it easier to be an older volunteer. Um, I, there, I thought there were a lot of advantages to serving, in my case, most obviously, because I was serving with my wife and we had each other to, to cheer each other up on, on days when things maybe didn't go so well. But as an older volunteer, you you have a different kind of relationship with the people who, who run the village or town where you're serving. Um, we showed each other pictures of our grandkids, and we could talk to each other in a, in a different kind of way. Um, you command respect as an older member of the community, and uh, I, you know, I, I actually thought it was it was easier in a lot of ways. As far as my job, which was mainly working at a library in the community where we were serving, mm-hmm. um, before I'd even been there a day, they they checked me out on LinkedIn and they they Googled me and they you know they I think they had a sense that I. Um, was not a newbie to the workplace that that I might be bringing some interesting ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, in turn, I had a lot of respect for them. The the woman who ran the library was maybe a few years younger than me, and I know how tough it can be to, to run a department or an organization. So I I looked at her with a lot of respect, um, and so we just were, I think we were able to click really pretty quickly, um, and it really made it a lot of fun. That's great. Um, so before we get too much into detail on your library job, um, can you just tell me uh, and tell, tell the listeners a little about Moldova? Sure. Moldova, and I will confess, before I went to serve there, I had barely heard of the place myself. Moldova is the poorest country in Europe. It was a state of the Soviet Union. It was part of Romania some years back. It's uh, a small landlocked country that is wedged between Ukraine and Romania, not far from the Black Sea. It has about 4 million people, maybe less than that, because so many people leave the country to work in other countries to make money. And its most important industry is is winemaking. Uh, you see grapes everywhere. And Moldova was the wine growing center of the former Soviet Union. Uh, and the wines that make now are actually pretty good. Um, so it's a very agricultural country. Uh, you still see a lot of vestiges of the old Soviet uh, empire there. But it's an interesting mix of that with Romanian culture uh, and, and European culture more broadly. We, we thought it was a fascinating place to be. So for those who are not familiar with um, how Peace Corps service works, um, what all do you know when you're going in? Like they say, you're going to Moldova. So what do you know as you're, when you're going in? Well, you actually get to say where you would like to serve after okay. you've gone through the medical process. They, they may rule out some places where, um, where you're eligible to go. Um, and you could say, you know, hey, I'd like to go here or there. Um, it, you know, if you if you speak Spanish, for instance, the odds are probably a little greater that they may send you to Latin America, and you know, or if you speak French and so forth. Um, so uh, you get 
some say in where it is you're going to go, although a lot of people just check the box that says send me where I'm needed most. But you're, you're, you are um, signing up for a specific job in a specific place. Not, not like I'm going to be in a, a library in this town, right. but, but rather I'm going to you know, be an English teacher or do health education or something like that. So um, when you got there, um, can you talk about how you got to having that library job? Yeah, it wasn't really my um, assigned job. I uh, was assigned to work at what amounts to the county government for this uh, small city where we were posted. Uh, and I like that job, and I like the people I work there. I actually didn't feel terribly productive. Um, and I, as part of my training, they had encouraged us to go to the library and some of the other institutions around town to introduce ourselves and maybe find a volunteer project. So when Champa and I went to visit the library, um, they were so welcoming and they said, oh, we could probably use you in all kinds of ways. And sure enough, the head of the library called me a few weeks later and they were doing a, um, a program to encourage kids to try computer coding. And she said, well, we don't know anything about that. Could, could you teach that? Well, I don't know much about computer coding myself, but I said, yeah, sure, I'll give it a try. Uh, and it was great. And it actually led to an ongoing class that I started teaching every week. And before you know it, I was spending more and more time there. And after a little while, my boss at the Peace Corps said, you know, it sounds to me like you're a lot more productive there than you are in your regular job. So what if we just make that your job? And I said, great. So that's what I went off and did for for most of my time as a volunteer. And um, kind of describe what the library was like, because well, obviously we all know what American libraries look like, but um, what kind of stuff was in the collection? What kind of stuff is in the building? So let's start, for, you know, for starters with the librarians who earn in a year what a typical American librarian might earn in, in a few weeks or a month. They are paid uh, very poorly by American standards. They're operating budgets are minuscule, if not non-existent. I mean, their budgets to buy books, you know, may, may be like $50 or $100 in a year, if that, um, much less, you know, they're not going to be going out and buying fancy sofas and, and a cappuccino machine or anything like that. Um, so, and then if you, in almost all the libraries, they have these shelves and shelves filled with these dusty collections of Russian books, books in, in Russian from the old Soviet days. I, I never saw anybody actually read those books. Um, so, you know, so they're, they've, uh, the library I was at was in, in physical terms, probably a little better off than some Moldovan libraries, but it's, it's a far cry from what you'll find in the typical American library. Now, Steve, having said that, I think there actually were a lot of similarities, too. Uh, you know, I know American libraries, both public libraries, but also, you know, universities and, and other settings have really been um, thinking hard in recent years and decades, as you have covered in your podcast so well, about what their identity is in, in this new Internet age and when their customers could get information with their smartphones and everything. So like, what is the purpose of a library? Mm -hmm. Well, in Moldova, they're wrestling with that too. And they're trying to think hard about what is the, what is the niche they should be filling. And, and I found that really very interesting to, to be part of that conversation. And um, 
what I should ask this earlier, maybe, but what what language do they speak in Moldova? Um, I spoke or tr- tried to speak Romanian. <laughs> uh, the other, so they people speak Romanian uh, and Russian, generally both, depending which part of the country you're in. Um, one may be more commonly spoken than the other. So, uh, what, what what were some of the you mentioned that you know they're trying to redefine their role? Are there a lot of people in Moldova, like with smartphones and mobile devices? There are more and more. Not surprisingly, it started with some of the you know younger folks, but um, uh, a lot of people, yeah, now have smartphones or internet access. Actually, the the internet is is surprisingly strong in Moldova. So, if you can afford a computer, people are connected. Um, not necessarily such a strong tradition of reading books, uh, whether they were old Russian books or, or whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, during my work, while I was trying to do classes and things, just as in America, the kids may be sneaking off to watch YouTube, um, or, you know, funny, funny cat videos or whatever. So some things are pretty familiar, there is an organization called Novateca, which was funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which really had a transformative role in Moldova, as well as some of the neighboring countries, um, of trying to empower the librarians to, to get more computers, to get training, and to rethink their jobs, um, So and to, and to try new classes, and to fill some of the same kinds of niches that libraries are uh, in the United States. Um, so I ended up getting involved in a in a robotics class, a computer coding class. Um, th- we had an English conversation class, maybe not too surprising, but also partly because of my communications background, we redid the library website, started using infographics. We started trying to use videos as part of their outreach, started trying to use surveys with the community to assess different kinds of things they should do. And, you know, just the idea of doing a survey with the community is, which may seem obvious to people who are listening to this, some of that back in, you know, in old Soviet days, is just not how they did business. So they had to really, you know, in terms of being advocates and being community leaders, some of that is still a really new idea, Uh, the whole idea of civic engagement and civil civil society. so it's exciting to see that unfolding, but it's, you know, it, it doesn't happen overnight. Well, and it's great that the library is being a part of that because that's really, again, you said, you know, redefining the role of the library. And that's because books are books are a tool that we use to do things that we want to do, of creating communities and um, promoting civic engagement and things like that. But without those, there are cert- there are things that you can do. Um, so like you did robotics classes and you were doing your language classes. Um, are there any other um, programs that you did that you wanted to talk about? The library actually more on its own uh, than, than through me was also had, I thought had some interesting classes on advocacy, uh, both with librarians in, in neighboring areas, but with the community as well of, helping people think about how do you write a grant to get money, not just from the government, but from other sources? Um, How do you reach out to the local community to make them aware of your services and to try to attract them to come in and and give the library a chance again? Uh, While I was there, they um, started paying more attention to community members with special needs. Like they just, they started a Braille collection uh, and they were looking for help and getting training to to how to use those materials. Um, Facebook has really caught on, so they were using that. They started a blog 
So, um, yeah, you know, and again, these are people who are being paid uh, not much, um, but they were working hard to try to make the library a more robust source for the community. And as we talk about redefining the role of libraries, I wonder, um, before your trip to Moldova, what, what was kind of your mindset when you thought about libraries? Or what's been your experience with libraries? So I am not a librarian, unlike a lot of your guests, um, but I did work at a university uh, for 14 years and spent, uh, and where I interacted quite a lot with the the chief librarian and others at Duke. Um, so at Duke, as at many universities, um, libraries have been pretty aggressive in in redefining what they're doing and viewing themselves as as a meeting place. Uh, and as a resource for professors and students and other members of the community, not just as a place where you're going to get books. So, so I was part of, I actually spoke with people involved in that a number of times. So it was very aware. I found it pretty exciting. I didn't know at the time that I would personally get drawn in to that process, um, you know, w- with a library more closely, but it made sense to me then. And it made even more sense to me after I got involved in it. And did you um, did you and your wife feel welcome there when you were did, they, did all the people welcome you? We felt very welcomed. So uh, I've been talking about myself. My wife Champa taught English at the local school. Um, they weren't quite sure at first what to make of someone who was originally from Nepal. They found that pretty interesting. Um, and uh, but she yeah she got along famously with the other teachers and had a had a good time. Had a, a one project in particular that was very successful to create a costume collection for the school's drama department that turned out to be a really big deal Mm. um yeah we felt we felt very welcomed um moldovans uh are not the most cheerful people in the world at first at first um, meeting often Mm -hmm. uh uh, they sometimes if you're if you're walking on the street you may not see a lot of smiles um which is, I think, true of some other East European countries as well. I know I'm really overgeneralizing here. Um, but as we spend time and got to know our colleagues and our neighbors, and especially the host family that we live with, um, we made really close, very dear friendships with them, um, which we have kept, it's almost two years since we've been back, and we're still very much in touch with our host family and with our students and our friends there. Uh, they were wonderful people, and we we really treasure the time that we got to spend with them as a whole how did how did you how do you feel like now that you've completed it for for now um how do you feel about your experience at the library did it really change how you thought about the library um did it change how you thought about the moldovan people well again the bottom line is i thought i had a really good experience and it's one um uh, where i feel as peace corps volunteers say so often um where even though I was supposedly going over there to help them, I felt like I walked away as being the person who who got more than I gave. Um, it was a life-changing experience and, and um, one that I'm grateful for. Um, it, 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 as inevitably, if you spend two years outside of the United States, it gives you renewed appreciation for all the things that we have as Americans. You and I are talking at this moment of tremendous worldwide anxiety, justly so, because of the, the coronavirus outbreak. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, as a Peace Corps volunteer, it, it's hard to see the world in terms of us and them after you've lived so closely with people in a 
with people in another culture um, and you begin to see the, just how much we all share in common. And also as, as um, dire as the situation seems today in the United States, uh, it's, it's still the case that we have resources here that are unimaginable in places like Moldova, much less in some parts of Africa and elsewhere around the world where I think in America, the situation is, you know, if we can get our act together and ramp up our production and, and so forth, we, we may be in better shape because we do have those resources to call on, which is, is not the case in, in other countries. Um, and so again, after having sort of lived in elsewhere around the world, I, you, you become aware of that. Um, you know, something else I've been thinking about a lot these past few weeks, Dave, is, is um, you know, Peace Corps in some ways embodies the idea of volunteering and of service to others. But it's so impressive to me to see uh, just within our own country of how our, our doctors and nurses and first responders, but but millions of other Americans as well have been responding, which in terms of Peace Corps says, you know, Peace Corps volunteers are not unique and not different. I think they just exemplify what's best in the American spirit, uh, which circles back to maybe where we started in terms of people who are listening to this, either supporting or joining the Peace Corps or whatever, that, uh, you know, it is, to me, it's, it's, it's part of our American story, uh, and it all, it all links together. So um, the Peace Corps and librarianship share a lot of values because we all want to serve our communities. Um, sometimes, you know, the Peace Corps, you're going off to find your community and um, librarianship. Sometimes we're trying to find our community among ourselves as well. So um, can you talk about how um, that sense of service kind of drove you to uh, in the Peace Corps? Well, the sense of services uh, is the main thing that did drive Champa and me to um, sign up for the Peace Corps. We felt like we had had a very blessed life uh, in America, uh, which we have. And we have two wonderful sons and their families, and, and we have many things to be thankful for. Um, so we wanted to have an adventure, and we were looking to shake up our life a little. But but above all, we really wanted to take take a solid block of time to devote ourselves to service. Uh, and the Peace Corps is a pretty well-established way to do that. If I could follow up on what you were just saying about the um, overlap between libraries and the Peace Corps, yeah. uh, prior to this conversation, I uh, put a query out on the uh, Facebook page for return Peace Corps volunteers saying, hey, I'm going to be talking to Steve, and I'm just wondering if others have done interesting things with libraries around the world. Mm-hmm. And and I was blown away by some of the uh, responses I got, if you'll indulge me just for a minute. So I heard uh, one volunteer in Nicaragua. Hi, David. I turned a dilapidated, dirt-covered, unused classroom into a fully functioning library. Here's somebody in Tanzania who built a library where he worked. Uh, And I'm I'm looking here at a list that's uh, Nigeria, Zimbabwe, Kenya, uh, uh, the volunteer in Mongolia who started a library and said, I'm reading her note, I first arrived and 20, 25 months later, we had over a thousand visitors to our library. And there are a number of organizations that have sprung up uh, with return volunteers, which are providing ongoing support. They, they also said a couple of things that I thought your listeners might enjoy. One was a, a former volunteer in Tanzania who spent some time at a library just calling the books that they already had, which really were not in, in good shape for 
their patrons to find and use. And, and let me read one sentence. It said, I also called books that were just taking up space, like the Suzanne Summers Diet Guide, well-intended donations that hadn't landed in the right context. So, yeah, maybe not the main thing they need there in Tanzania. <laughs> no. um, and, uh, and here's one I thought was fun from a volunteer who served in Zimbabwe. And she wrote, I started a library in a rural area in Zimbabwe that hadn't had a library before. It's fun to explain to people how a library works. So many asked how much the books cost. And I would explain that they were free, but you had to bring them back. Yeah, and I like that you went to that um, group to find um, quotes or uh, the stories to talk about on here, because I wanted to talk about something that you mentioned in the book, too, of your experience with the other volunteers um, who are also there, the Peace Corps volunteers. Um, you all kind of gives you a little sense of community there yourselves, I guess. That was one of the best things for uh, Champa and me about being volunteers, particularly being volunteers in our in our sixties. So most of the volunteers that we served with, the other the other Americans, were younger than our two sons. Um, so uh, we weren't quite sure what to expect, but uh, in general, we got along really well. I mean. This, it was unusual things would happen. I remember one time I was sitting in the Peace Corps lounge and they, the, the radio or whatever it was started playing a Carol King song. And one of the younger volunteers said, Oh, it's that song from the Gilmore girls. And, um, you know, we it just had a really, had a really different context for hearing that. And that would come up uh, pretty, you know, we'd all go out together and if they were going to go out and get a tattoo, I didn't go with them. And uh, if my older, one of the other volunteers was telling me a, a, a memory about going to see a Rolling Stones concert, well, they might tune out for that. Um, but we were all in this together. And, um, and I really thought it was fun to, to serve together. Uh, and more broadly, you know, my group, um, we had volunteers from all across the United States, and they were young and old and gay and straight and married and single and uh, of almost all ethnicities. And we had quite a few volunteers like Champa who had been born in other countries. Um, and it was a microcosm of America. Uh, and I was proud to be part of that. When it, when you knew your time was coming to an end, um, how did you, I'm trying to think of how, how would you, how do you wrap up your life <laughs> in a place like that? Um, knowing you may not ever return? Well, we are going to return. It's our Moldovan grandmother's 90th birthday this, this coming summer. And if, if this coronavirus thing allows us, uh, you know, if, if it's possible, we we are determined to go celebrate that birthday with her. Um, but it was, in answering your question, it was hard to wrap up. We had really invested our, uh, our our hearts into this community and made such good friends and our host family really became our family. Um, and we knew, you know, we knew we were going to have to say goodbye. And we, we had so many farewell dinners and goodbye parties and they love to give out certificates in Moldova. So they had a, we got a bunch of certificates and then my last day at the library, the mayor of the city came by to give Chomp and me certificates and we broke open a bottle of champagne from the winery down the street. This was at 10 o'clock in the morning and we had a, we had a good old party. Um, but it was hard. And it gives me great empathy for the volunteers who've just been evacuated from around the world who, unlike us had no time to prepare it was all they could do to throw their stuff in their suitcase 
uh, and some of them have been there where they were almost as long as we had been, and you know, boom, they're on a plane and coming home, and then they're quarantined. So I hope if anybody listening to this knows a, a recently returned volunteer that they'll uh, reach out to them and thank them for serving, and and uh, they could probably use a hand right about now. You you talk a lot sometimes about um, how the internet allowed you to kind of keep track of what was going on in America, but you became kind of less and less engaged with everyday politics and things like that that everybody here gets involved with. But are you now able to use the internet to keep in touch with Moldovans, people you met there? Yeah, absolutely. We uh, trade messages all the time. And I've gotten a few questions from some of my former students just in the last few days uh, who have been hearing about the spike in coronavirus here and are wondering about that or wondering about our upcoming election you know, the world's a pretty connected place. And I, in turn, have been following what, what's going on in the, the city where we served. Um, and it's not that hard to, to stay in touch and find, find out what's, what's going on. Um, you know, you, you, you said that while I was there, I, I tried to scale back. And, and that's true in the sense of, at, so in my previous job at Duke University, I was the head of the news office. And I was very much a news junkie. I was reading several newspapers a day and constantly watching cable news and staying online. It was my job. I had to be on top of things, you know, in real time. And, um, you know, we would be jumping at the news with with our university experts or whatnot. So I was very much in that world. And um, it was, frankly, very nice to leave it behind and to not just be able to turn it off, but to be in a part of the world where they really didn't care. You know, they don't know right, the difference right. between Fox News and MSNBC, and they probably never even heard of them. Uh, and and it's also eye-opening that on Martin Luther King's birthday, which is a deservedly a big deal here in the United States, uh, you know, some of my colleagues, they didn't even know who he was. He actually, it's the same birthday as Mihai Amanescu, who's a famous poet from Romania, and that's that's the birthday they celebrate. So it's just, you know, it's a reminder that the United States is not necessarily the center of the universe, um, and people everywhere care about what's happening in their backyard, and they tuck their kids in at night, and they live their lives. Well, so you guys are back in the U.S. now. Um, would you ever want to do it again? Um, no, for us, I think we've done it and we, we are very happy we did it. Um, I don't think we could leave our family again for that long is, is the honest answer. It was the hardest part of being away was we have what's, what's now seven grandchildren and it was really hard to be away from them and, and from our kids and their, their spouses. Um, so, uh, that's the Peace Corps for us, but simultaneously, I mean, we, we treasure the memory we have of it. And, and you mentioned to me that um, earlier in an email that we were um, talking about that you had taken some ideas from North Carolina and were able to – libraries in North Carolina and you were able to give them to the Moldovan something about a story time. Yeah. So uh, Chomp and I came home halfway through our service that summer uh, on our own dime to just to see our family for a few weeks. And, and while we were there, I'd set this up in advance. I met with some of the people who were some of the, the leaders of the uh, public library system here in Durham, which which is a, a wonderful library system. Um, and I was basically wanted to pick their brain for ideas. And so they gave me a whole bunch of good ideas. And I, I brought them back to my 
uh, colleagues in Moldova. And the one that they really liked was this idea of story times, which are a lot of our libraries, a lot of your listeners may do that in their libraries. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was not a thing really in Moldova. Uh, although somewhat in Romania, which is next door. So long story short, we uh, they started that program and also to have to bring in experts to talk to local moms about children's health issues and, and other things that would be of interest to them. Uh, and my biggest project there was working with the librarians. We got a small grant to transform one of the library rooms of the library into a, this really beautiful family room uh, with with kid-sized furniture and some nice places to sit for the moms, and we put murals on the wall, and it's still going strong. And the the, the uh, they have programming for the families, and it's been a wonderful addition to the library. But that I don't think would would have ha- would not have happened if we had not gotten the original idea from uh, the folks here at the library in Durham. In wrapping up, what is it that you and Champa are doing these days now that you're back? I spent some time writing the book, uh, but we are both involved in a program here in North Carolina that's a partnership with Moldova, which is where we served. So that's been great to discover that. And so we're spending time on that. Uh, I'm involved in another volunteer effort to promote the use of vaccines around the world through uh, an organization based in Washington. And we're, we're both doing other volunteer activities here in Durham to help our local community. All right. Well, David, thank you so much for coming on the show and letting my listeners know about um, not only the libraries over in Moldova, but kind of about your experience and um, the reasons why you did it. Um, If people wanted to follow up with you, how could they get in touch with you? Well, again, the book is called Not Exactly Retired, and that's also the title of my blog. So if they wanted to uh, reach me, they could uh, go to the blog and and, uh, I will respond promptly to questions about the book or the Peace Corps or anything else. Um, And uh, I would look forward to hearing from them. All right. Well, thank you for coming on, David. Thank you, Steve. And thanks to everyone for listening. Circulating Ideas is produced in the suburbs of Atlanta. Views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of my place of work or the place of work of guests. For past interviews, visit circulatingideas.com and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or your podcast app of choice, and help others find the show by leaving a rating or a review. You can follow the show on Twitter at CircIdeas or like the show's Facebook page. Theme music is by Pamela Klicka, and the logo is by Shandy Fry. Thanks for listening and keep circulating your ideas.